Good evening, church. Merry Advent. I just made that up. I made that up a couple years ago. And they taped up the stage tonight because it's feeling like there's a strong chance I may fall through it again. But we're going to get through that, okay? If you were here several months ago, I did actually fall through the stage. But that's not going to happen. I'm just going to not move much, which is really hard. for. I'm going to stand on this side. That side seems unsafe. Uh, no Christmas spirit over here. This is a Scrooge. This is the Christmas side of the stage. Welcome to Crossbridge Church. I'm so glad that you're here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. And I want to welcome you to the first Sunday of Advent. This is a series and a season of time that we celebrate every year, and we launch a new series. This series is called The Christmas Family Tree, and it's not only being launched in all of the five Crossbridge churches across Miami, but it is also being launched in our entire bridge movement. So here in Miami, there are two additional churches that just joined our global movement, City Church Alapata and Love Unlimited in Hialeah. They have also launched this series along with us this morning. And then there's also the churches in Brazil. There's over nine churches in Brazil that are also going through the same exact sermon series from Sao Paulo to Recife to Fortaleza to all across um, the country of Brazil. So can we just give God a round of applause for what he's doing? It's amazing. It's really neat to know that I think this is the last uh, sermon in the bridge movement of the day, but there have been 16 sermons on this same passage and the same topic all over the world. Isn't that amazing? It's really, really cool. And so we're going through this series during Advent because we want to trace the lineage of Jesus from Eve to Mary. We want to look into the brokenness of the figures and the people that are a part of Jesus's line. We want to see their longings and identify with them. And we want to also look into the hope that God gave them and they cling, they clung onto during their time of waiting. I was reflecting upon this question this week, which is, why is Christmas and its season so special? I don't know if you feel the same way. I think most of us feel that Christmas season, Advent season, is different. It feels magical. There's wonder in the air. And I was reflecting on what are the reasons that we feel this unique sense of of special time in the year, especially for us in Miami. The weather doesn't change. It's still the same, but it feels different. Is it the lights? Is it the music? Is it the parties? Is it the vacation that you have coming up? Is it the gifts that you may receive or give? Is it the Christmas bonus? Can I get an amen? Amen. What are all the things that are happening in this season that make it special for us? Maybe it's all of those things combined. I was reflecting upon that this week, and I thought to myself that all those things and many more make this season different and unique and special. But I think for many of us, what makes Christmas special and full of wonder, is that there's a nostalgic feeling in this season. Many of us can remember what it was like to be a child during this time of the year, how we felt after Thanksgiving when we got the catalog and we made a Christmas list and we sent it off to Santa, when we knew that we were going to have two weeks off of school 
And we were building and culminating to this one night and this one day, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, what gifts would we receive? What kind of party would we have? How much cake would we be allowed to eat? What would Christmas be for us? There was so much joy. It was a perfect time of year. I can remember trying to fall asleep on Christmas Eve and trying to fall asleep early because that meant I could wake up early. But it was hard to fall asleep because I was listening for the reindeer hoofs on the roof. There's magic when you're a kid. And, and that's still kind of in our memories. It's still a part of us just considering what Christmas felt like. But as we age, it feels a little bit different, right? Christmas is full of joy for many of us, but for some of us, it's full of tears. The pain of life and the difficulty of life has kind of diminished the wonder of Christmas. It, it's more of a mixed bag. Some seasons may be better than others. It depends on the season and stage of life where we're at in our career, what our relationships look like, how we're personally feeling, how the year has treated us. It's different as we age, but the special uniqueness of the season, I think in many ways, is because we try to see Christmas through the eyes of a child, through our own eyes and through our own memories. And, and I'm sharing that with you because we're going to be in the very beginning of the Bible this evening in Genesis chapter 3. The first three chapters of the Bible is the story of creation. It's the account of how God formed the universe and how he formed us. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the creation account of God as the great potter out of his imagination forming the world, painting with the brush of his creativity all that is the complexities of the universe. And for me, I don't know why, but Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in particular feels a lot like Christmas. It's full of wonder and artistry and beauty, all that God has building. And we're invited to step into this time that we did not live. We're, ex we're invited to allow this event that took place, the very creation of our universe, to see it from God's perspective and the beauty and the wonder. Why? Because it is actually written within us. Something in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is written within our memory. And you're going to see that. It's deep within you. It's affecting the very core of who you are. And so as God, the potter and the artist, is forming the universe full of wonder and beauty and perfection, it begins to zoom in as you read the account. You know those pictures where when you zoom in, it's like a picture within a picture, and you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into the picture? This is what's happening in Genesis chapter 1 and 3. It's, it's starting outside, and it's zooming in, zooming in, zooming in as God is forming everything, and it focuses on one moment. Just as for many of us, Christmas feels like it culminates into this one moment on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. That moment that creation focuses in on is the very making of human, of Adam and Eve, the first parents, the first people, creation. This is the focal point of God's creation. The culmination of his creative project are the very people made in his image. And Adam and Eve are not only the literal first people, they are also representative of us. All throughout scripture, we see that Adam and Eve represent us. They act as we would act. And we are connected to them. And so in the garden, Adam and Eve are placed as it zooms in 
to the earth on this little garden that is too beautiful to even describe with words. And there, Adam and Eve are living in harmony. Harmony with one another. Harmony with nature. Harmony with God. God is in their midst, it says, not only in a felt way, but in a real way, an actual way. Perfection. This is the reality that you and me were made for. This is what we were designed for. This is what we long for. It's written deep within us. Longing for harmony with one another, harmony with the world, harmony with the very God who made us. It's in our soul. It's deep within every crevice of our heart. There in the garden, if you jump to chapter 3, you know what happens. There's a fall. The creative mind of God that culminates in these first people are given a temptation. There's a tree placed in the garden, and God tells them that you can eat of any tree that you want. But do not eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat of it, you will die. One tree. They can eat of the tree of life, eternal perfection and harmony with each other and nature and God, but don't eat of this one tree. And Adam and Eve do what we would have done, which is they eat of the tree. See, deep within our being, we have the same propensity And I'm sorry if I'm going to declare this over you, but this is true of you, even though many of you I don't know very well. And that is this. You have the propensity to mess things up. Do you know that? We all in this room have the propensity to mess things up. It's who we are as people. We make some good choices. We make some bad choices. And that is why as we grow in life, Christmas becomes messy. It's not as perfect as it was when we were children because... We have experienced mess that others have inflicted upon us, and we have messed things up ourselves, and so life becomes this great paradox. You see, you were created and designed to be in paradise, and yet our reality is a paradox between great good and great evil. And deep within our being, we would have made the same choice as Adam and Eve, which is to eat of the one tree they're restricted from, because perfect wasn't perfect enough. Nothing's ever good enough. You may be asking if you're like me, okay, I I don't really understand. If Adam and Eve are the focal point of God's creation, made in his image, why not just leave the tree out of the garden? Have you ever thought that? Like, just give the tree of life everything else. Just keep the tree of knowledge of good and evil somewhere else, God. Why'd you put it there? Here's why. Because we as human beings are made in the image of God, but we are not God. And the differentiation between us and God, as you see in the very beginning of Scripture, and we will experience again in the end of time, is that though we are made in his image, he is still other. Proverbs 30 says that only God knows and only God can handle what is truly good and evil. We are incapable of handling goodness and evil and remaining pure and holy. We can't handle it. And so God puts this one restriction in the garden just to differentiate. Hey, you are to live in harmony with me and each other and nature. You are to experience paradise, perfection. But you're still made to worship me. 
because I am God and you are my creation. I am creator, you are creation. There's a differentiation because as God establishes us made in his image, he gives us freedom. We are free beings with a will and sadly our will is predictable. When we, are, when we in our freedom are given the option to choose, we question. We would have done the same thing that Adam and Eve did, which was question the existence of the tree. Maybe it's actually good. Maybe God is lying. Maybe there's something better. Maybe there's a better perfection than we already have. Maybe there's greater harmony. Maybe there's greater wisdom. Maybe life can get even better than it is now. And so in that garden... With that curiosity and that doubt, the serpent comes. You see, before they fall, what happens is that this tree is placed there and everything's going okay, but then the serpent, who is Satan incarnate in the snake, comes to Eve. And here's what the snake says. Listen to these words. This is verse 1 of chapter 3. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you notice something there? Did God say that they could not eat of any tree in the garden? No. He said they could not eat of one tree in the garden. But the snake, the serpent, the deceiver, the devil himself comes to Eve and is manipulating her through a lie. Hey, did God really tell you that you can't eat of any tree? How oppressive is God? How restrictive is God? You see, he uses a lie to capture her attention. And this is what lies do. It's why they have power. They capture our attention. They cause us to interact with them, to question what is being said. And that's exactly why the serpent, who knows they're only allowed, they're allowed to eat from every tree except for one, comes in with a lie. Because then Eve responds and Eve says, no, 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 no. That's not what God says. God told us that we could eat of any tree Except this one. And if we eat of this one tree, we're going to die. So we're just not going to eat of that one tree. And then the serpent, the deceiver, comes in and says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Let me tell you a little something that you don't know. God doesn't want you to eat from it because he doesn't want you to be like him. You see, there's some truth in that. In the sense that God is other and he is different from us. He is God. We are still his creation. We are made in his image, but we are not God. And the tree is placed there to reveal that we are still made to worship him because he alone can handle the knowledge of good and evil and remain holy and pure. But Satan is using this truth and he's twisting it in a lie by saying, listen, God is keeping something from you. He he doesn't want you to experience what that tree can provide you. And it says that Eve, as she hears from the deceiver, she begins to look at the tree again with different eyes, the same kind of eyes that we would have looked at it, and thinks, it does look good, actually. And maybe it's wise for me to partake of it. Maybe it'll give me great wisdom. Maybe it'll give me great knowledge. Maybe perfection can be even more perfect than it already is. And so she partakes of that fruit And so does Adam, who's right alongside of her, passive and quiet. And the prize creation that God formed out of his own image falls, and our reality is forever shaken. 
There is brokenness, there is sin, there is despair. And this is what is their reality and ours as a result. You see, from this moment, we have begun to experience as people made in the image of God, great goodness and great evil. Through this one act, this one deception, this one lie that we partook of, the mess that Eve and Adam made, the same mess we would have made, is why we're here. It's why being human is complex. And one of the complexities of being human is that waiting is hard. Does anybody here like to wait? Right? No. Many of us time the traffic so we don't have to wait. Someone invites me to go down south at 4 o'clock. Sorry, I cannot go. There's no way I'm leaving this area of town at 4 o'clock. We don't like to wait. Why? In, in a deep sense, when we're waiting for something that is good in the future, it's typically the waiting that's most difficult. When we are kind of crossing our fingers and hoping that the future will be better than the past or the present. There are things that you are praying for. There are things that you are longing for. There are things that you desire deeply, and you're waiting for God to answer. You're waiting for it to come to fruition, and it's hard because you just hope that the future is better than the present or the past. And this season of Advent is such an interesting season that the church hundreds of years ago has set in the Christian calendar. Many churches, millions of churches all over the world this time of the year engage in the season of Advent. And the word Advent means waiting. Waiting specifically for the birth of Jesus. Four Sundays up until Christmas morning. Waiting for the birth of Jesus. Again, maybe you're thinking something. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wasn't Jesus born 2,000 years ago? We're not waiting anymore. He was already born. Like, this is weird. Why are we doing this? I understand if Jesus hasn't been born and we have this season of waiting, why are we waiting if Jesus has already been born? You see, though we are blessed to be on the other side of Jesus' birth, we as human beings are still very much like those who waited for Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. We have the same amount of brokenness, we have the same longings, and we need the same hope. Because waiting is still hard. Even though we're not waiting for Jesus' birth, we are still waiting for Jesus' return. We're waiting for brokenness to be mended. We're waiting for our longings to be satisfied. We're still waiting. And so we would be wise to look back into the people that were waiting. What did they learn? What did God teach them? How did they wait? How did God deal with people in the midst of their waiting? And that's where we get to Eve, the very first person who entered into a season of waiting. I want you to imagine for a moment how Eve felt. Going back to the garden, everything was perfect. She listens to the serpent. She's deceived. She takes the fruit. She eats of it. She hands it to Adam. He eats of it. And in a moment, reality is forever altered. It says that she realizes that she's naked and feels ashamed. She realizes that she's made a mess of things. Imagine how she felt. Blaming herself. The shame that she felt. The guilt over that one decision that she knows probably she shouldn't have made it, but she made it. Fear 
over what Adam thinks and over what God thinks. Living now a general state of hopelessness in an instant. You see, Scripture actually places the primary responsibility for the fall on Adam because he is standing there passively next to her and does nothing to protect or care for her as she's being deceived. And yet, I have to imagine that in that moment, Eve was really struggling. She was really beating herself up and blaming herself over what she had done, along with Adam. Can you relate with Eve? Can you relate with Eve? Do you feel shame over things that have happened in your life, over things that you've made a mess of? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel at times a a deep sense of fear of the future, fear of what other people think, fear of what God thinks, a general state of hopelessness? I think we all can relate with Eve, but here's the good news. After she eats of that fruit and she is wrestling with shame and guilt and fear and hopelessness, the story continues. God comes into the picture now. And he begins to speak to Eve and to Adam, but I want to look primarily at what he says to the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, God is speaking universally and prophetically to the serpent, Satan, who is incarnate in this animal. He's making a declaration both to the serpent and for Eve's benefit because she is there listening. And for our benefit, as Adam and Eve represent us, And the promise that is given to the serpent and to Eve is the same promise given to us. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says. It says, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God speaks to the serpent who has just deceived Adam and Eve, and he makes this declaration, this prophetic declaration of what will happen in the future, but it's not only for the serpent to know his fate. It is not only for Satan to know what the end looks like for him, it is for Eve to hear what God is declaring as she is in the midst of despair and shame and guilt. Look what she hears. Verse 14 reveals the hope that is delivered to Eve. God's promise is received by Eve right here in this moment. And there's two aspects of it in verse 14 and 15. This is God's promise received. Verse 14 says that the serpent is going to slither on his belly. So it means the serpent probably had arms and legs. Cursed to slither on its belly so that it would eat dust. It's a weird curse. And that's because dust in the Bible, when it's consumed, is the imagery of destruction or defeat. It's why when people are in mourning, they cover themselves in dust and ashes. It's a symbol of destruction, of defeat, of despair. 
So the proclamation that God is making over the serpent is that you are going to eat your defeat and your days are numbered. There's a spark of hope for Eve. Imagine how that felt. She has just made a mess of everything along with Adam. She's beating herself up. She's feeling shame. She's feeling guilt. She's feeling hopeless. She's feeling full of fear. And God comes and declares to the serpent, you're not going to win. You're going to eat your own defeat. Your days are numbered. What is it telling Eve? Yes, Eve, you have made a mess of things, and there are consequences for your actions. That's justice. But God is a God of mercy. Eve will not mess up God's plan. Neither will Adam. God's plan is sure. The deceiver will not win. He will not prevail. His days are numbered. Imagine the hope that begins to erupt within Eve like he's not going to win. He may have won over me, but he's not going to win in the end. You see, the same serpent that tempts Eve with a lie is the same serpent that tempts you. It's the same devil. It's the same deceiver. And the same promise that's given to Eve is given to you. When you make a mess of things because you were deceived and you were tempted and you believed it and you thought it was better for you to ignore what God says and listen to this temptation and then you realize, I, I made a mess of things, why did I do that? And you feel guilt and you feel shame and you feel fear. The same promise given to Eve is given to you because Adam and Eve are representative of you and this promise is yours too, which is he's not going to win. The devil's not going to win. His days are numbered. He's going to eat his own defeat. The promise gets expanded in verse 14, or verse 15. The very first gospel proclamation in all of the Bible, verse 15. Look what it says again with me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, many of you know that I typically teach from the ESV. This is my favorite version of the Bible to preach from, but they did a bad job on the translation, verse 15. Okay, somebody tell them, ESV, not good here. And that's because the Hebrew in verse 15, I think, is more accurately described by using the word seed instead of offspring, and also using the word crush instead of bruise. It more accurately describes what God is declaring over the serpent and what Eve is hearing. So notice how the promise is being expanded. God says to the serpent that I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman, speaking about Eve, and the seed of your offspring. Now, This word seed here has two senses. It's interesting because in Hebrew, it has both a singular sense and a collective sense. And both of these senses are in view in this one verse. The first is the collective sense. God says that there's going to be enmity or hostility between the offspring or the seed of Eve and the seed of the deceiver, of the serpent. Now, what is God saying? Let's just simplify it. All of those who come to faith in God and have received the same promise that Eve has received here, that God is declaring, they are of her seed. They are included in the family of God. 
You are of the line and lineage of Eve. And those who are deceived by the devil to reject God and reject the promises of God and continue to eat the forbidden fruit, they are of the devil. And many of us here know that because many of us have changed lineages. We were of the seed of the devil being deceived for many years and most of our life for some of us. Believing and rejecting God and believing that the forbidden fruit that the world promises is better for us until God snatched us out of that family and brought us into his. You see, there's a a collective sense that God is making a, a proclamation that there's a difference and there is, in fact, even a hostility between the people of God and the people who reject God. But then it narrows into this singular sense where there's two figures who are going to have a battle. And here's how it plays out. The battle is going to be between the devil himself, the serpent, and one who is of the seed of Eve, someone that will come from her line and her lineage. Now, who is the one that is going to battle the serpent that comes from the line of Eve? You're in church. There's one answer. What is it? Jesus. Amen. And notice the language. You are going to strike his heel like a serpent slithering on the ground. But he's going to crush your head. There's two wounds here. The first one is a painful wound, but it's temporary. The striking of a heel by a snake. But the second wound is a killing blow. It's a final blow. The crushing of a head. Two wounds, very different outcomes. You see, this proclamation that is being made here over the serpent that Eve is hearing culminates thousands and thousands of years later in what we celebrate in Advent. The birth of the Son of God. The birth of one from the line of Eve, the seed of Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. His heel will be struck as he's placed up upon that cross. But in fact, the very striking of the heel that the serpent thinks is this final blow for Jesus, the serpent doesn't understand that that's in fact the killing blow, the crushing of his head, because Jesus, after he dies, he's buried in the grave, and after three days, he comes alive victorious over death. He has crushed the very thing that the deceiver wants to bring into the world. Why does the, why does the serpent tempt Eve to eat from the tree? Because the serpent wants to bring death into their reality. That was God's promise. Death is going to come. That's what he wants. He wants death of relationship, death of life, Death of your soul, death of your emotions, death of your physical state. That's what the deceiver wants to bring to you, to me. And yet his head has been crushed because Jesus died the death that we deserve and he defeated it on the cross. He crushed his head. I wanted to ask you, if you've received that promise that's been given to Eve. Eve receives this promise. Imagine how she feels when she hears the expanded nature of the promise. Because God is telling her two things in verse 14 and 15. 
One, he's saying, Eve, you're still included in my family because from your seed is going to be the people of God. You may have made a mess of things, but you're still part of my family. And then he also tells her that you're still going to be a part of my plan. For from your lineage will come the very one who will destroy and crush the head of the deceiver, the serpent himself. She's still a part of God's family. She's still a part of God's plan. Do you believe that about yourself? That no matter the mess that you've made, in Christ you are still a part of God's family and you're still a part of his plan. And you can live free. Listen to what Hebrews says. I love that the way the author of Hebrews tells us about what Jesus has done for us in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2. It says this, Since therefore the children, that language of offspring and seed again, this is us, we share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. Because we are made of flesh and blood, Jesus became flesh and blood. Why? So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. See, that's the, that's the devil's power is death. He wants to bring death. And so Jesus becomes flesh so that he might through his death destroy the power of death that the devil holds and deliver all those through fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. You see, when you receive the promise of God, the same promise that Eve received here in the garden, you know two things. One, that no matter the mess that you've made in your life, you're still a part of God's family by faith. And two, you're still a part of God's plan. Because Jesus became flesh, and through his death, he destroyed the very power that the devil himself holds, which is the power of death. You are no longer enslaved to that fear. You're free. This is why we, as people of faith, should be able to wait. We should be able to feel free and alive and full of hope, even in the midst of our waiting, because we know the end result. We're victorious. We have no fear of death, for death is only the beginning of us stepping into the very reality that we were made for, which is paradise and harmony with one another and with nature and with very, the very God who created us. Death and its fear and its power has been defeated because the head of the serpent has been crushed. The devil just doesn't know it yet. This isn't in the Bible, but this is what I think is happening. I think the devil right now to this day is still saying the same thing that he said in the garden to himself and to other people, which is, did God really say that? He heard this proclamation in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but he's still saying to himself, did God really say that? And he's telling other people that too. He's telling you that as well. Did God really say that? Did God really give that hope? Did God really tell you that you could be a part of his family, even though you've messed things up? Did God really say that he wants you to be a part of his plan? He did, friends. Don't listen to him. He wants to pull us away through a lie and a slight manipulation of the truth. But God wants to come and deliver a promise to you and to me. Just one more thing that happens, and this is my favorite thing in the entire chapter. After Eve receives the promise that God has declared over the serpent and instills her with hope that she's part of God's family, she's a part of God's plan, that the devil's days are numbered, he's going to eat his own defeat, his head is going to be crushed, there's victory. 
She returns to God's care. There's this really peculiar verse in verse 21. You're reading it and you're like, what's this all about? It says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothed them. Why did this happen? In the garden when Eve eats of the forbidden fruit and so does Adam, it says that they realize, as I said, that they're naked and they feel shame. And so because they feel shame, they want to cover themselves up. And so God does for them what they cannot do for themselves. He clothes them and he covers their shame. Now notice how he covers their shame. It's not like in this ancient art where Adam and Eve are always wearing like a, like a leaf outfit, you know. They're wearing the finest leathers. God makes only the best clothes, friends. It says skins. See, what it's saying there is that God took an animal and he sacrificed an animal and offered it as clothing to cover their shame and their nakedness. See, God promised that when someone partook of that tree of knowledge of good and evil that there would be death. And in his mercy, he spares Adam and Eve. But there is someone or something that dies in that garden, and it's an animal that is killed for its hide or its leather to clothe their shame. God covers them. You know, this very interesting that there's one dream that every single person I've ever asked has had, and that's this dream. That you're in the middle of a crowd and you realize, and you know what I'm going to say, you're naked and you're terrified and you're full of shame. Every single person I've ever talked to in my life has had that dream. Why? Because we're connected to the garden. It goes all the way back to the garden. That what took place there is written within us. We feel this need to cover our shame. There is this association still with nakedness and shame. But we don't only want to clothe our bodies. We also want to clothe the shame that has been a part of our life. The mess that we've made. The guilt that we feel. We try to cover it up. We try to hide it. We try not to let anyone else see it. And God is doing for us what he did for Adam and Eve. What we cannot do for ourselves. He's covering our shame. You see, this event here is not just some weird verse about God making a leather outfit for Adam and Eve. It's foreshadowing something. It's foreshadowing the very way that God will cover your shame and my shame. For God will take someone and he will offer that someone as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who will spill his blood for the covering of our sins and our shame. He's not covering us with physical clothing. He's covering us with the very salvation of our soul, the very forgiveness of our sin. You see, Revelation 3 says that that God will give to you white garments to cover your shame. Isaiah says that though your sin is like scarlet, it will be whiter than snow. Jesus says that his death is the purification of your sin and your shame. And yet what he tells you and what he tells me is that the deceiver is still coming like a thief to steal your joy and to uncover what God has hidden. 
run to Jesus and find joy and freedom and a covering. So I want you to hear this, friends. If by faith you have come to experience freedom and forgiveness and love in Christ, don't uncover what God has hidden. He has hidden your shame. Don't uncover it. Do not deny the promises that God has given you. You see, what you're being invited to in Genesis is to go back to how God sees you and what he says to you. All the way back in Genesis, you're invited to see how God sees you and what he says to you. And here's how God sees you. You are made in his image. You're the culmination of his creative project. And you are made to worship him. And the way that he invites you to worship him now in this broken world, this paradox of great good and great evil, this life that we live where we make a mess of things, is he wants you to receive a promise. A promise that the very deceiver who deceives you will not win. His days are numbered. He's already been crushed. He just doesn't know it. And that hope is yours that you are victorious, that you are a part of God's family, that you're a part of his plan, and that your shame is covered so that you can live this life now waiting with freedom, not with shame. That is what you're invited to see yourself as, how you're invited to live, how you're invited to wait as you pray, as you long for things that you, de- you declare and you decry to God, please deliver this in my life. You can wait victorious. You can wait free without shame. Don't uncover what God has hidden. Don't deny the promises that God has given you. Because listen, by faith, you are now and always will be in God's Christmas family tree. You are a part of his lineage. Don't uncover what he has hidden. Don't deny the promises that he's invited you to receive. There is hope in waiting. There is freedom in waiting Would you find it as Eve found it too? Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we are grateful that there is hope. That in the midst of our waiting, we can live free. We can declare that we are loved by you. We can remember that we're invited to be a part of your family and your plan despite the mess that we make. You have covered us, our sin and our shame, Jesus, by your death. We don't need to uncover that. We can live with white garments, knowing our, our sin is like scarlet, but it's made whiter than snow. Because Jesus, you have defeated death. And the fear of death. Would you enable us to be people in this time, in this season of Advent, that live free, that live victorious, that live with a promise, that declare that you are good, God, that we are made in your image, that you care for us and you love us and you're merciful to us. What a gift you have given us. The gift of your son, the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Father's love and plan. We receive this goodness, God, that you have given freely to us by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, another example of grace.